You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars, and this is episode 456 of the Columbia Calling podcast. I have to say I've been incredibly happy with the podcast episode so far. Last week, Emily took over, Emily Hart took over and interviewed the, well, she should need no introduction to any of you, Maria Emma Wills, talking about reconciliation and memory in Colombia. Prior to that, we talked to the, uh, well, German individual, Rebecca Spruva. You remember she was, um, well, deported from Colombia for belonging to the Primera Línea during the 2021 protests in Cali. And of course, before that, we also had uh, Bruce McLean of uh, BNB Colombia Tours talking travel in Colombia. So, so very important, these topics. And this week is no less important. We're talking to Dr. Luisa Marcela Osa, assistant professor there of Spanish in La Salle College, Pennsylvania. We'll be talking to uh, her about Colombia evoking Africa. So very important indeed. Grupo Nietzsche, Chucky Town, Candelario Beso, Bojos Benco, San Basilio de Palenque, all of these overlooked issues and items and historical points of interest and very important uh, historical points when we think about Colombia today, when we think about, the, let's say, the culture that permeates Colombia. And then next week, we'll be talking to well, followers of and, of course, supporters of Children Change Colombia, of the NGO small charity out of the UK, of which I am a trustee. But we'll be talking about some of our supporters who came out to Colombia and visited uh, a project in downtown Bogota, Los Martires, the Santa Fe district, uh, of course, where children, most at-risk children in Colombia were looked after, are looked after. And, of course, that's where the money goes. So, of course, we'll be promoting that as well children change colombia check out the website please uh yes and that's about it from me right now we'll be over to emily hart with the news and then back with luisa marcela osa discussing colombia evoking africa on this week's colombia calling podcast and of course you can support us on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. We are at 99 Patreon supporters. Who wants to be supporter number 100? And for those of us who, uh, those of you out there who follow us on LinkedIn or Facebook or uh, Twitter, I did post our, our successes for 2022. I wrote up a document of how many downloads and so on, and which were the most popular podcasts. You want to take a look, you can find them all over those social media outlets. And it was a great year. 2022 really, really put the Columbia Calling podcast out there even further. And this... 2023 is the 10th year of Columbia Calling. But of course, our anniversary, our 10th anniversary is in June 2023. So I'll have to think about what we can do in June 2023 to celebrate 10 years of the podcast. And of course, I'm open to any and all suggestions from listeners and of course, supporters out there. What should we do to celebrate 10 years? Anyway, over to Emily Hart. This is episode 456, and then we'll be back with Luisa Marcela Osa in segment three. Don't go away. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling Podcast is also 
proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Colombia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation, and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017. By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again. I'm Emily Hart and these are your top stories for the week of February 6th, 2023. The Inter-American Court of Human Rights has declared that the Colombian state is responsible for the violent elimination of the Patriotic Union, a left-wing political party established in 1985 as part of a peace process between the FARC and the government during that time. On a national scale and over decades, paramilitaries and security forces perpetrated human rights violations against the party in an atmosphere of impunity. 6,000 members of the party were murdered amid thousands of forced disappearances and widespread torture designed to suppress the political movement. This week, the court found that the state's role amounted to crimes against humanity, ordering acts of reparation including a communication campaign, new protection mechanisms and compensation to victims and their families. The court also condemned successive Colombian governments for failing to investigate those crimes. Colombia's president, Gustavo Petro, welcomed the decision. The Patriotic Union are still active and form a part of his ruling coalition. The draft of the new National Development Plan will be presented to Congress this week, detailing 1.2 trillion pesos in public spending over the next four years, from social justice to food security. The plan, whose draft was released last week, creates a new mechanism for truth and historical memory to function in relation to former combatants of illegal armed structures now submitting to justice under the Total Peace Policy. It also gives the government power to regulate coca and cannabis for medicinal, therapeutic and scientific purposes. One of the most notable proposals of the new plan aims to reduce the power of private health providers, with more funds directly managed by the state and more health workers becoming public sector employees. In the same week that the United States shot a so-called Chinese surveillance balloon out of the sky, various countries in Latin America have reported similar balloons in their airspace. Colombian authorities reported the presence of a similar object over the north of the country, and the US Defence Department reported a device flying over Costa Rica and Venezuela. Controversy as a Colombian judge used new artificial intelligence programme ChatGPT while making a ruling in a case relating to an autistic child's medical insurance. The AI chatbot has made the headlines worldwide this year, sparking fears of plagiarism and disinformation on a mass scale enabled by its software, which searches the entire internet to answer questions posed to it. Though the Cartagena judge said that he had also used precedent to make the decision, there are urgent calls for digital literacy training for judges. Though inflation continues to rise in Colombia with a near 2% increase in January and 13.25% over the last 12 months, unemployment dropped down to 11.2% last year, according to the National Statistics Agency this week. This is a 2.6% reduction compared to 2021, showing ongoing recovery from the pandemic. The gender gap, however, remains a serious issue. Unemployment for men is 9% compared to over 14% for women. Unemployment figures in Colombia remain substantially higher than the regional average, which is 8%. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening.
And we're back. This is the Columbia Calling Podcast. I am here with a very special guest on the line from Philadelphia. That's Pennsylvania in the United States. It's Luisa Marcela Osa. She's the professor of Spanish at La Salle University there. She specializes as well in Afro-Hispanic literature and culture and racism and anti-blackness in Latin America and the U.S. Uh, so we got in touch over Twitter, and, and now we're here talking. So welcome on the Columbia Calling podcast, uh, my, uh, Luisa. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to get an opportunity to speak with you. Well, no, it's it's exciting for me because, of course, history, I, I, I go down rabbit holes daily. <laughs> And what you sent me and what I saw on Twitter, which immediately sort of, you know, uh, awoke me to your interest was, of course, this this uh, emphasis on the African elements in Colombian music. And it was this article that you wrote called Evoking Africa. And not only that is that you are an academic, but you are trying and doing so, uh, you know, to to break down the borders of academia with, let's say, the regular world, so that these articles are more accessible to people out there. It's not a one long line of references to other academic articles and sort of, let's say, backslapping within the academic world. <laughs> uh, but I really found this article, Evoking Africa, and it's the subtitle is The Music of Jairo Varela and Grupo Nietzsche. Uh, and I think that's a great place to start. Now, you are half Colombian, mm-hmm. uh, and you grew up in between Manizales and, I want to say, Ohio. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and so there you go. And, you know, all of your, so you're back and forth, back and forth, but you you have a very you're very personally invested in in this sort of recompilation of history and, and culture. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your past and how you got so involved in this. Sure. So um, as you mentioned, uh, I'm biracial, bicultural. I guess to, to limit it down. So my my mother was black from the United States and my father was white from Colombia. They both have passed, uh, but he was from Manizales and my mom was from Columbus, Ohio. So I was born in the States, but I spent a lot of my childhood um, in Colombia and Manizales did some of my primary education there. So as we talked, it's hard, you know, often people want exact years and exact numbers, but it wasn't chronological, right? (laughs) That was one of those people, you know, for some months we might be in one country, then we'd switch to, you know, go to the other country. So there was a a lot of back and forth in my early years. My mom actually had met my father in Colombia. She um, loved linguistics and languages and she had immersed herself. She wanted to get native speaker level of Spanish, which she did accomplish once she was in Colombia. People thought she was Colombian or from another Spanish speaking country. They didn't cool. think she was from the US, right? So um, so that's kind of um, my background. Uh, and, you know, my parents had a love for Colombian salsa. So growing up, you know, I was, you know, before I got academic with these things, right? It was just music I enjoyed, uh, like Joe Arroyo, which I published about as well, Fruco, you know, Grupo Nietzsche were all things I was exposed to, you know, growing up and just love to just listen to, you know, and dance as many other people um, did. Um, but then, you know, once I started undergraduate school, um, you know, I started in business and that didn't go well I didn't like that <laughs> meanwhile I, I was uh, doing well in my English classes and writing and then there was a language requirement at my university so I went into like an upper level Spanish course you know tested out of the the lower level Spanish and and I liked the Spanish courses too so I was a double majoring in in English and Spanish and during that time my father was in Colombia at that point um I was going to Notre Dame. My father sent me a couple of Manuel Zapata Oliveira novels. I think he sent me Chambacu mm. and Enchango uh, and And I think I started, you know, but none of my classes that I was taking, you know, featured Afro 
extended authors, and, you know, in Latin America or anything like that. But I was fortunate. At the, I found an open-minded professor that I said, hey, I'm really interested in learning about this author and, and you know, more about Afro-Colombians. Um, and so we did an independent study on Chambaku um, and Manuel Zapata Oliveira. So that would kind of open the door for me kind of on my own to get to learn more about these things. And so when I went to graduate school, similar experience, very limited on, um, you know, what we learned about the Black diaspora in America, you know, they might be a little bit of Nicolas Guillen or somebody like that in, in the curriculum, but few and far between. So again, uh, was fortunate, found a good advisor that was open-minded. Um, and I ended up writing a master's thesis on Chango by Manuel Zapata Oliveira. So that um, that was a, a great experience and I learned a lot through there. And then when I went to, and that's actually from where one of my first publications comes out of, you know, I took a chapter from there on, um, on Chango and was able to publish it in the Afro-Hispanic Review. And then uh, in, in PhD, similar story, right? Where, where the Black authors, where the Black diaspora found someone um, where we kind of, uh, we did the Caribbean at least. So, um, you know, I worked with a non-Black uh, author, Maida Montero, that, that incorporates a lot of the not just African, but Chinese diaspora in some of her novels. You and I talked about that, you know, prior to uh, recording. Um, so that also generated interest in, in that because my approach was, besides my personal interest as someone that's, you know, of the, of, is Black and, um, and not, not Afro-Colombian in the truest sense, right? But uh, uh, as part of the Black diaspora, um, you know, I was interested in that per, from a personal level, but I was also, as I mentioned to you when we were preparing for this, that, you know, how many articles do you need on the same famous authors all the time, right? So the things that piqued my interest were the things that I felt weren't being studied as much, weren't getting attention, right? So the fact that this author, Maida Montana, was talking about the Chinese diaspora in the Caribbean also got my attention a lot. And so I focused on studying some of that. Uh, in grad school, and then that also led to some publications down the line. But uh, throughout this, right, going back to the music, you know, I've always had the the love <laughs> and passion for the music, and you know, just listening. Some of it started very informally. You know, I'm listening to Nietzsche and uh, songs like Ancogido la Cosa, and 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 then also going back to um, Joe Arroyo as well, right. <laughs> Uh, and things like that and then it's just hitting me like nobody's writing about like the content the lyrical content right everybody's shaking their behind <laughs> because they're very catchy songs right yeah. they make you want to get up and dance uh but they have very serious content about you know the black experience in, in Colombia about um the history of, of enslavement and all these sort of things so um, I, you know, I consider music a type of literature as well, right? Especially when you have such serious content as that. So I kind of, you know, finally just decided I'm going to write about these things. <laughs> and that's kind of from, from where some of these articles um, came about. So the most recent one, which you referenced um, on uh, Evoking Africa, that's my most recent publication and it's titled like that Jairo Varela and Grupo Nietzsche some of your listeners already know but for those yeah. who don't right he wasn't just a member of the band he was truly the band leader and he composed pretty much every song they've recorded there might be a couple of exceptions but he was a very prolific songwriter and composer and so you know the content lyrically is also his for the majority of their songs. So since I'm talking about the lyrical content and the meaning behind it, you know, it was important to single, you know, to point to him, right, as the author of these songs. So, I mean, this is it's incredible because, you, you know, you, you obviously, you know, Colombia, you are Colombian, and I'm here. And, 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 and I was just talking to some Colombians this morning before this, 
mm-hmm. saying, well, you, you know, look at this article. And I said, look, Nietzsche mm-hmm. Komoyo is, is mm-hmm. basically black like me. They didn't exactly. know that. They did not know mm-hmm. that what it meant. And they're Colombian and, and they're yeah. from there. And as you say, you know, the the lyrics in these songs are very powerful. And I can think of the Joy Arroyo one, Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Is that the one with the chorus? Is it, is it not No lo pega la, la negra? Si no le pega la negra, exactly. I mean, exactly. This is strong stuff. And yet you mm-hmm. just see people sort of, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, they're twerking, but they're twisting their, yeah. <laughs> their hips to it. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, exactly. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it's almost a protest song in, in its way with the lyrics, not protesting, but it's at the very least, it's, it's, it's uh, evoking no. the history. No, I, I would call it a protest song. It, it, it's a song with many layers. So that publication is in Spanish that I wrote about that article, but in simple terms, I, I talk about the layers because you can read it. You know, obviously a lot of people just enjoy the music and I, I do too. Like that yeah. song is really hard to sit there when that song comes on, oh, yeah. right? You, you want to get up and dance, but then it, it's a love song, right? Because the, the lyric is about an enslaved man who is tolerating all this terrible abuse and stuff he's not happy but he's kind of you know tolerating it for for lack of a better word until right the the enslaver hits his beloved right (laughs) then 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 that's the line right he's like the tone of the song is kind of like i'll put up with it but no le pegue la negra right you're not hitting like my my woman um and so you know, he's willing to rebel to protect her. So there's like the love song level, right? That that she is well, she's willing to fight to protect her. But obviously we know that really that's symbolic of rebellion, right? And on a deeper um level, because uh to your point also the song, you know, gives historical yeah. dates, right? In Los Angeles, right? In the sixteen yeah. hundreds, right? He yeah. he gives the history of when you know, the transatlantic slave trade starts and when it arrives in the Americas and, you know, and then he weaves in kind of this this couple and this love narrative to represent, you know, all the issues and abuse and things yeah. and how th- protecting his, you know, the woman that he loves um, creates a rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it is a protest and it's also dropping you know historical tidbits as it goes along you know obviously it's a it's not that I know of a a, a historic couple specific couple right but there are specific history notes woven into the story that's symbolic of all these deeper issues right what it it makes me think and you again you reference this in your article it Mm. makes me think when we when we talk about the dates and stuff of course Mm. of Benkos uh Biojo the you know the 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 rebel uh slave because he brought through Cartagena and you know they 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 estimate that a million slaves were sort of processed through Mm. Cartagena uh, uh, and then, of course, the the whole history of San Basilio de Palenque, the the, mm. the, the, the free town, sort of, I guess, mm. an hour and a half from Cartagena inland. But there is a lack of knowledge, and I think we keep mm-hmm. coming back to that. You know, we we can enjoy the songs. The songs are catchy. Uh, mm. The history is unknown. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, okay, how many actually people go through, for example, the Inquisition Museum, and how much does the Inquisition Museum actually tell us? And uh, a year or so ago, a bit more actually, we were up in with my family in an area called Sanguare. So it's up from north of San Onofre. So uh, we're looking at Sucre, aren't we? San Onofre, Sucre. Mm-hmm. And uh, 10 kilometers along is a town called Berugas. Uh, and I only mentioned it because I would not have known about the town. Mm-hmm. Because 10 kilometers along the coast, I could still hear the pico from the New Year's mm-hmm. Eve parties, 10 kilometers away, the noise. Wow. And then I asked about it and they said, well, it's, you know, they, I mean, the reference was, it's a black town. Mm. So I started looking online and yes. Mm. And it's, of course, it's, it's a um, contraband town where things come in mm. and out of, but it always has been because that's where uh, uh, the, the, the slave merchants, if they didn't want to pay the tariffs and the duties in Cartagena, snuck them in through uh, Berugas. And what we're seeing mm. today is, the, the, you know, it's a, 
continuation of the history, but in different forms. And now, you know, drugs going in and out and so on. But previously, it was the sort of illegal slave uh, entrance. And that's what then put me more in interest into the history and looking more into uh, San Basilio de Palenque. And I just, it, it beggars belief to me that it's not kind of on the national curriculum. There's a sort of, uh, you know, when we talk about history in Colombia, there's just so much that's obviously the colonial history, the white European history, and then, you know, go through the comuneros, and then there's the, the conflict kind of erases anything else. Mm. And only now, I would say, people like yourselves and, of course, other academics are starting to sort of uncover what it means to be black in Colombia. Um, and, and I think this is so very important because, again, in, from your piece, these are facts from your piece, is that, you know, is the largest Afro-descendant population of any Spanish-speaking country in Latin America. Of course, there's, you know, we can talk about Portuguese and Brazil, but mm -hmm. Colombia, for the Spanish-speaking, it's, mm -hmm. it's huge. And yet it, it, we're treated as if it's a minority here, you know. It's, but mm -hmm. it's, it's a, such a, a key uh, population mm -hmm. that... It's you know, underrepresented, of course, in politics, underrepresented. I think the only place where it's kind of represented were two sports, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the national football team. That's when everyone forgets the, the inherent mm -hmm. racism in Colombia and, and music. And mm -hmm. you were writing about these. I think it's, I think it's uh, fantastic that we can talk about these, these things now. And, and I wanted to reference a little bit Emmanuel Zapata Olivero. He's from Rica in Cordoba, wasn't he? I mean, because there's a big mural. Yes, up in if there. I remember correctly. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, yeah. I had to read up on him because I brought a group. Uh, I brought mm -hmm. two groups of Americans through there. <laughs> the first mm -hmm. tourists ever to go to Lorica, like big American groups. Mm -hmm. And I had to say, this is uh, an author. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I had to read up. The information is not out there. It's not out there in English. You know, yeah. it will be to people looking for it. Mm -hmm. But it's not sort of general. So... Uh, I think it's. Yeah. I think you, you have really, obviously, are touching on something that's so very important in, in this, and 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 of course, it talks about. I mean, all of this thing, all of this subject, talks about race and discrimination, which is very much an issue, perhaps not addressed enough in Colombia. I mean, what yeah. did you say on that on that kind of front? Yeah. Well, um, with. Manuel Zapata Oliveira, he's an extremely um, important figure, and uh, to your point about finding materials on him, in academic circles, the people that do work related to like what I do, um, Afro-Latin mm. uh, American literature and culture, they're definitely, he, you know, a, a solid group of people studying him but more i'll say like what to your point of like if you're trying to introduce people to to his work that aren't academics and that kind of thing like simple articles on him or thing are, are likely lacking right because i have some publications on him i i, I know a number of scholars that have done work on him like uh, marvin lewis antonio tillis uh and, and a number of other people uh but um, he's definitely under-revered in Colombia and outside of Colombia because not only was he an author, he was an extremely accomplished man. He was an anthropologist. He got his medical degree. Mm -hmm. And so he was really, and I think I'm forgetting something, but he was an incredibly studious and um, accomplished person. And so, you know, way before me and some others, he actually really hard to preserve uh like maintain and preserve and recover a lot of afro-descendant history so um for example i know that uh and also indigenous history because people focus his work on the african diaspora which is very important but he also uh he had um you know uh he would he called himself tri-ethnic, so I know he had indigenous uh, ancestry as well, but he also thought it was very important to preserve, like, oral history of indigenous groups in Colombia as well. So I know that he worked um, for a time 
um, going to different regions of Colombia and literally recording like stories of elders, be they like, you know, kind of campfire stories or yeah. also their histories and narrative. And his daughter, Edelma uh, Zapata Perez, is very much understudied and also a figure that I, I do work on. She participated in um, that work as well. And for a while, um, they had a radio show together where they uh, shared and disseminated some of that work. And it almost got lost um, when uh, Zapata Olivia passed away. But fortunately, um, Vanderbilt University stepped in and they acquired a lot of those um, recordings and documents that he had made. And they have a Manuel Zapata Olivia library available. Ah. Yeah, so if anyone's interested, you can <laughs> look that up and Google it. Um, and I know that they were in the process. It, uh, I haven't looked recently, but from what I remember, some things um, Zapata Olivia had transcribed, but a lot of it wasn't transcribed. It was just recordings, right? So I know that at Vanderbilt, there were people working on also creating transcriptions of like these um, recordings of stories and histories that he and Elma had collected. Mm-hmm. So, so there. Um, I know last time I checked, there had it's been a year or two, but the a good number of these recordings have been transcribed. So it's definitely a good place for people that want to learn more, not just about him, but about some of the history that he tried to preserve and collect. Uh, to check out the the Zapata Olivia Library from Vanderbilt. You know, they have a website so you can access a number of these materials. Um, what, what, what kind of years are we looking at, uh, the lifespan of uh, Manuel Zapata? Um, he passed away, and I'm terrible with the memorizing dates. If I remember, I think it was 2004 when he so passed away. Recent, I mean, really yeah, recent. Yeah. Because I, yeah, I mean, it, you talk about him and his achievement, mm-hmm. medical school, and it sounds like Colombia's incredibly emancipated on that front. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I was thinking back to, I guess it was the 1800s and, and the, mm-hmm. the Monposino. And of course, mm-hmm. I, everybody out here knows that I have my interests in Monpos, but the Monposino mm-hmm. poet, uh, Candelario mm-hmm. Bes. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and the lack of knowledge around his like the Los Cantos de Mi Tierra, the, the, the songs mm. to my land, and the poetry that he writes in the vernacular of the Bogas, it, mm. it, 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 it to me it's, it's it's astounding. And today, even in the town, you know, even in there's a bust on his on his tomb in the cemetery, which you know I point out to everybody. But even mm. today, we're looking at technically, I think, the first Black Latin American poet of this nature, and. You know, of course, he was the daughter, the son of uh, uh, of the washerwoman and a white mm. uh, judge or lawyer. And when we talk about emancipation, I mean, he, he went to the military school through obviously his his you know surname and so on. He went to the, in Bogota, oh, became sure. a diplomat in Panama. And you think, well, you know, there were opportunities. I mean, I'm sure they were the exception to the rule because of his surname and so on. Mm. Uh, but it's so unknown, and his house. Today, there's a plaque on it, plastic plaque, but it's kind of like a, I don't know, it's like a, a Corrientazo restaurant where you drink beer. And I was just like, I would love someone like Vanderbilt, or maybe La Salle, here we go, uh, to <laughs> buy it and put up a, you know, just a small museum to educate, mm-hmm. because we do have a dearth of museums, and it would be, mm-hmm. everyone would go. Everyone mm-hmm. would go. Everyone who visits the town would go to the museum and read you know, the, some of the poetry and understand, and, and, and yet it doesn't exist. And oh, it's so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm familiar, you know, on a general level mm. with Delario, so I haven't like studied him in depth, but uh, a person who's who's passed away, a professor, but he was one of, um, he was kind of a mentor to me, Lawrence Prescott, uh, who had a long career at, um, Penn State University, and he was, uh, when I first started early in my career, he was the president of the Afro-Latin American Research Association, which I continue to be involved with today, Um, and that is one of the figures that he studied in depth, and I I was, as you were talking, I was double-checking what what, uh, 
yeah, so he has uh, one of the public publications is actually a book, Candelario Beso y la Iniciación de la Poesía Negra in Colombia, right? So, uh, but, but I agree, like, um, that I, I know that Dr. Prescott's work was um, uh, groundbreaking in the sense that, you know, he was one of the few paying attention to Oleso's work and trying to really get it highlighted by being able to get a, a book out there on him. Yeah. Um, but he's definitely under um, a study. But for your knowledge, since that seems to be a figure of interest to you, I definitely yeah. recommend you look into I'm going to look up the book now, definitely. <laughs> publications. And Dr. Prescott's also someone that um, did a lot of work on Manuel Zapata Oliveira. They uh, had developed a friendship and um, yeah, and they used to each other and things like that. So, um, and he was also, you know, Nuevelma Zapata Perez. So he was somebody actually when I was doing my work on Manuel Zapata Oliveira, that's how I met Dr. Prescott. I had some questions and I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't, uh, you know, a naive grad student about to graduate and didn't even think about maybe this person will ignore me. I was just kind of like oh you know I got to try it and he was so gracious and kind and you know kind of took me under his wing and gave me guidance about you know some of my publications and interest in in this field so his his work is definitely um really valuable when, about both of those authors excellent I will I'm going to research that Lawrence Prescott and, uh, and mm -hmm. I wanted to let's go back a little bit now so we, we, mm -hmm. we, we digress and that's the whole idea <laughs> that's right <laughs> but I, I like it because we're still covering the same points but mm -hmm. uh, uh, some of the uh the comment and the quote that you put in your mm -hmm. piece and it's the quote from Barrella mm -hmm. there's no Colombian influence in my music mm -hmm. how do we interpret that I mean uh, how do we, is it just that Afro-Colombians are using oral traditions to preserve their history? I mean, how, if you were, I mean, you are Colombian, so how mm. do you, as a Colombian, uh, you know, interpret that? Yeah, so I discussed that in, in my article because it is such a, you know, strong uh, statement. Mm. And, and then he elaborates on it, as you know, because you read the article. So he, you know, what he was saying is, you know, that people want to claim a lot of these musics um, like salsa and Colombian salsa, because obviously I don't want to get into the debate of where salsa started. Yeah. What's yeah. But like, it's <laughs> some of the other more Colombian genres, right? Like uh, cumbia and all those things. They want to claim them as like inherently Colombian, right? And detach them from their true roots, which are African, right? African percussion, African rhythms, all those things. So I think that he made that very in your face statement to reclaim that. And then he elaborates, right? Because he, he addresses that, you, you know, he says something along those lines. Obviously I'm not quoting him directly, but the idea of once he elaborated on it, it he said, you know, it doesn't mean that the, that it's not, that these musics didn't evolve or change in Colombia, but at their core, right, were that was the music brought by the enslaved African people, right? That that particularly, you know, he focuses on like the coastal regions and Choco, right? He's talking about where a lot of these musical styles grew from. Uh, that many people will just say, "Oh, they're Colombia," right? Yeah. And I think he, I, so. I think it it was his way of like pushing back on those narratives that ended up erasing, right? The the contributions of afro descendants right of black colombians to colombian culture right just becomes this generic colombian thing right so now you know taking those ideas and going a little away from my article right like you take an example like cumbia right? cumbia is colombian right and 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 so you know this generic colombian without often without recognizing of like what's at the core of this right which is African music, African percussion, African dances, right? The dances, um, right? From that. And so, you know, when he makes statements like that, it's pushing back on these kind of like sanitizing, erasing um, narratives or going back to something you said earlier on when Black people are highlighted in Colombia, this very superficial thing. See, we're not racist because Black people help with the music. 
and the sports, right? And it's all this very superficial and also stereotypical type thing, right? But it, it ends there, right? But when you start asking for political inclusion and, and you know, all those kind of things, then, you know, people don't want to discuss it, right? Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, when you talk about the, the different genres of music and you uh, mm-hmm. talk about the Pacific, the Kurulao, mm-hmm. it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to me that there's anything more pure African than the Kurulao. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, the marimba, uh, the, the the way it's played, everything. And cumbia, mm-hmm. of course, is, is the whole platform mm-hmm. that it's based mm-hmm. on. I know the gaita is different and I know the wacharaka and everything mm-hmm. else, but the whole platform that makes cumbia, that makes chande and mapale, is African, and that's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to 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 broaden our conversation to include okay. more contemporary music then in that one because, yeah, you know, we talk about vallenato, and of course mm-hmm. it's got the drum in there as well. I mean the accordion, mm-hmm. of course, is, and that's where they say it's the the you know people will say it's the purest Colombian Colombian and what we think of as Colombia because. It's got the European, it's got the indigenous wacharaca, and it's got the, you know, the African tambor. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Or can we say, no, you know, let's let's be a bit more um, direct and let's investigate that further. But people are very happy to say, no, this is the, the purest actual mm-hmm. Colombian music. But I want to say, well, it's, it's a blend of others. <laughs> so I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, I'm not a musicologist, so, you know, I won't delve too deep into that, but I'm always hesitant about anything that claims to be pure, right? (laughs) So so whenever people are are using those kind of words, you know, I always recommend caution and investigating. (laughs) I mean, I I will say I wouldn't call it the purest, but yes, it definitely is a a genre of Ayanato that that takes influences from, you know, European, indigenous, and African. Um, But again, I, you know, since my expertise is more cultural and narratives, I would ask, uh, I would invite listeners to think about, but how are, how is that information presented, right? How are those narratives spun? Why is it presented a certain way? So often, you know, the work I do, you know, when it's presented of like, this is Colombian and in a, a very, again, going back to superficial because it's the white and the indigenous and the black and all in harmony, right? Huh. It, wh- why, why is that, right? It, it's, it's presenting that narrative of mestizaje yeah. in a very, um, what I call toxic way, right? That everyone's mixed and therefore there's no racism and see, we all listen to Vallenato and, and dance, right? And obviously I'm exaggerating for effect, but those it really is a lot of that, right? That that the people take that and they do that, and then again, Missy Sahin. There, you know, I've written about this in some of my work. But there are a lot of scholars that work more in depth on this. You know, how Missy the narrative of Missy Sahin in Latin America is weaponized again to not deal with how indigenous peoples are treated, to not deal with how Afro descendants are treated, right? To create these these narratives that all these nations are all multiracial or or mixed or you know depending on the country pick your pick your variation of it right but because of that there's no racism right so uh i would present it from that standpoint just kind of be you know thoughtful and critical as to how the information about these different musical genres if we're tying it back to vallenato whatever right how they're presented and why they're presented that way how accurate is it, <laughs> right? It, I like or, that. I like, know, what's the intent, right? Like you say, question everything. Mm-hmm. Question mm-hmm. everything. And then, well, I mean, I know you're not a musicologist, but then uh, mm-hmm. uh, something that is, of course, incredibly current, because only recently a song was released by Colombia's premier singer, Shakira. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's pop reggaeton i don't really understand mm-hmm. reggaeton but pop reggaeton because the reggaeton that i remember at the beginning is the sort of uh, uh what's his name i can't even remember teo calderon like the forefather mm-hmm. of reggaeton and then you know we've got this sort of romeo santos and uh, mm-hmm. another one from medellin maluma or whatever and it's all mm-hmm. much softer reggaeton and i guess that's what shakira has moved into with this uh, 
could we call it a protest song or is it a romance <laughs> song? I, I think it's a woman scorn song. If it's a song. <laughs> I only heard, got to listen to it once, but I saw it trending on a oh. Twitter. Uh, it, right, her new song that just came out. Yeah. Yeah, so I, so I like and everything. Yeah. Everything in that. yeah so, um, I wonder how we look at that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I haven't like, studied her song but i can speak more broadly and, mm-hmm. and tie it to her so the reggaeton is something i do um teach about so and again very rooted in in the black diaspora so in very simple terms right re- reggaeton is an offshoot of reggae in espanol which is an offshoot of Jamaican reggae and dance hall. So, you know, you have Jamaican reggae and dance hall uh, in Jamaica, in region, in English. And then in a country that gets forgotten is Panama. So Panama is really the place where reggae um, in Espanol, right, reggae in Spanish really took off. So, uh, and you have people like El General who, uh, you know, became super popular in the um was it 90s yeah <laughs> making sure the dates early 90s if I remember correctly uh it, but you know they took uh he he was doing more traditional reggae and dance hall and Panama in particular became the locale because of the immigration from Jamaica to Panama there's a lot of back and forth um relationship between uh Panama and Jamaica and Jamaican workers historically going over to Panama, you know, in the past has been on the Panama Canal and other times gone for other reasons and stayed. Um, so, um, yeah, in Panama, uh, like El General is the most famous figure, right? He was uh, omnipresent during that time era where he just had to hit after hit, but it was like more traditional uh, reggae dance hall, but in Spanish, right? And from there, you know, it kind of evolved into reggaeton. Puerto Rico is usually the place that's uh, given credit as where what we now consider reggaeton um, evolved. But again, it's very important to recognize the roots. Reggaeton didn't just pop up on its own, right? We had to have reggae, reggae in Espanol, right? And then you start incorporating other beats and things to evolve into reggaeton. But then I think what, what makes it hard for you I think, is because a lot of things that get called reggaeton, which really aren't, they're kind of like, there's a bigger umbrella, you know, that um, that's like urbano, urban, right? Where that has like kind of R&B and hip hop and reggaeton influences, but it's not necessarily strictly really reggaeton. And so you have artists, like you mentioned, like, Maluma, who he, he's someone that really jumps genres, right? He gets labeled reggaeton, but he does a lot of things. He does pop, he, he has merengue songs, he's done salsa, he's done puro reggaeton, but he's done more poppy reggaeton, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so those are kind of like the roots of that. And and I teach a class on Latin American music, Latin culture, and we get into that. So again, now, for the listeners that weren't familiar about the history, think of who the faces are of reggaeton, right? You have Maluma, you have Jay Balvin, you have like all these people that are very white or light skinned, right? Where are the Black people who are the root of the music? So again, these are questions that I invite people to think about. You know, there are exceptions, but a lot of the people that were truly behind the music have been erased or they're not the ones making money. They're the ones that start to play small venues, right, and do that while there's been a lot, the music industry, right, selects. And it doesn't mean that some of these people aren't talented, right, but why are they the only ones getting selected, right? Where are the, the, the Black people, the darker-skinned people, um, you know, why aren't they getting the same level of fame, right, as the other artists I mentioned, when it's a genre clearly, <laughs> undeniably rooted, right, in Black music and Black, black not just music experience, because just like, uh, you know, reggaeton is very influenced by U.S. hip-hop, which again is a genre that came out of not just music, but people's experiences and rapping about like their experiences, including racism and things like that, right? So you 
have a genre that's very important to people, both of them, right? Hip hop and reggaeton that, that yes, is about dancing, having fun, but also had deeper meanings, right? And and then you you extract, there's a lot, the music industry does a lot of extracting the original people out of the equation, right? Putting these new faces and more sanitized messages out there or more pop or, you know, um, you know, just take your butt messages like a better way. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm, I'm pointing these things out so people think about like what is happening and who's represented and who's not. So like the whole, you know, appreciation versus appropriation, all those kind of things, right? I, I, mean, I do think it's, it's fascinating things that don't you know, obviously occur to me, mm-hmm. but I, I mean, I've, I have ideas and so on, mm-hmm. but why would you, I mean, have you got, or your students, when you ask them to think about why, let's say the creators or the talented musicians that maybe bring the music that then gets, you know, sanitized i don't know uh i don't know if that's a word i want to use but then gets uh packaged for Mm -hmm. why 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 does this happen i mean why because you know we have and i and i i don't there are obviously black artists who are massive Mm -hmm. and and incredibly talented Mm -hmm. and I I wouldn't you know I I don't know I mean it's it, it, mm. is it because it is it an easier thing to package a whiter I don't know I don't understand you are I mean the expert yeah, I mean I mean for me it's you know there's racism and colorism involved involved because there's no reason to package something again that wasn't even created originally by a certain group and continue yeah. to package people that have nothing to do with that culture as the faces of it. And again, for me, it doesn't mean that some of those artists aren't good or can't be included, but why are they the primary faces and why do you have to hunt for some of the people? I mean, think about even somebody that you mentioned, like Tego Calderon, who, like you said, is one of the incredibly talented rapper and uh, one of the pioneers. But think about like his fame versus, you know, some of the other people, right, is not the same, right? So why is that? We have to ask these questions. For me, it's definitely rooted in, you know, the history of racism and in colorism. Um, so again, and and yeah, and it's important that you mention the exceptions because people try and latch on on that, oh no, well, there's Osuna. But yeah, but why is he the one of only a handful of a genre started by black people that's that you so you know those are those arguments are disingenuous right when you think about like who's charting the most bad bunny j balvin maluma right why why are they and then (laughs) rosalia has a whole other like can of worms she's not even latin america and you have this white spanish woman right that has called herself latina (laughs) (laughs) right and using like you know hip-hop gear like like grills on her teeth and things like that like a costume honestly for me it's it's offensive (laughs) like and and, uh but for her you know she can switch it out of it anytime she wants right and but why is she so famous where are the Black women, reggaeton artists, why aren't they making her level of money and fame? Because there's definitely many of them out there. Well, plenty, plenty Mm -hmm. to think about. And I I think we should should bring this to a close because I know you're busy. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask then if there are, some of my listeners will get in touch and they'll say, well, where do I start with, Mm -hmm. uh, let's say, Colombian Afro-Hispanic literature. What I mean, you're going to say Manuel Zapata Oliveira, but who else can we look for to understand more of, of this diaspora? Yeah. So besides, you know, Manuel Zapata Oliveira is really important. Um, as I said, I've also studied his daughter, and then Masapata Perez. He did a lot of poetry and essay writing, so I feel like she's really accessible because she. Uh, read uh, poems and a lot of shorter essays but that also reminds me of another issue in learning this stuff which you've touched on it but it also part of the reason that I 
study music and it's the lack of accessibility to these author works. So despite, mm. for example, the importance of Zapata Vega um, and his daughter never achieved that level of fame, but is an excellent writer, but it's so hard to get a hold of their works, right? So um, fortunately, Changoy Granputas, I saw that the National Library has a PDF of it, so people can go uh, to find that novel, which is really great. Um, but, you know, you try and find Edelma's poetry, for example, like, was one run on one of her books, and then that's it, right? And so, like, it's often Black authors don't get reprinted, right? They don't, so it's really hard to find their work. Um, mm -hmm. But one way you can learn besides reading their works directly, so for example, um, some of the academic journals that I mentioned earlier, like Afro-Hispanic Review and Polara, which is the publication of the Afro-Latin American Research Association. Not only do they have scholarly articles, but for example, Edelma published some of her poetry in those journals. So, and um, Palara is now all online. So you can search for her and, and you should be able to find some of like her poetry. And, you know, um, yeah, I think trying to find anthologies is a good way to start because you can find some of the authors in anthologies or some of the uh, or reading some of essays that are more accessible, like not just my work, but some of the professors I mentioned, like Lawrence Prescott, um, you know, Marvin Lewis, uh, Antonio Tillis, um, and there are many others, you know, looking uh, up their work in that sort of thing. And then, like I said, there's there's a richness in the music too. Start listening to the lyrics. You know, we've highlighted some artists, but you know, what is we were prepping, we talked about Chokey Town, also very rich lyrically talking about, you know, a lot of the issues. And NCIP Biki also has some songs that talk about the Black experience in Latin America. So um, that's another reason, besides my love for music, um, even though I love literature and I consider music a form of literature, some of it, my work is also out of necessity. It's like, and, and that's also the beauty of music, right? That that it's a, often a lot more accessible than some of like the literary works because of all the reasons I mentioned, but you can, especially nowadays where, you know, there's things like Spotify and that's not an ad for them, but obviously they're one of the big ones <laughs> or Apple or whatever, but, but YouTube, right? You don't even have to, like if you don't have a lot of resources, right? You can listen to things for free, right? You can find the music and listen to it. So uh, music can often be much more accessible. And as I said, if you're listening closely, it can plant the seed for people to look up some of this history, like the songs we referenced before, like Rebellion, but also uh, we in my article, I talk about Cimarron, which is another one that literally gives lots of historical facts and talks about uh, Bencos Biol and all that. So, you know, take the songs and then if they talk about a figure that you didn't know about or give a date that you didn't know about, right? Start looking it up, you know? <laughs> so I think it's also a fun way to to learn and and push yourself and, and, and things like that. So, well, Thank you. Thank you for sharing with such enthusiasm and, well, the profundity of knowledge. <laughs> this was uh, so fun. <laughs> it's, it's meant to be fun. It's meant to be a conversation. I hope people are, you know, on the walk or the commutes or in their cars listening to this and think, oh, you know what? I, I got to I gotta do a bit more digging. I got to listen to the lyrics so. a bit more. Just then. So I, I just take this moment to say, Luisa Marza, Marcela Osa, who's the professor of Spanish at La Salle University, uh, with an emphasis on Afro-Hispanic literature and culture and racism and anti-Blackness in Latin America and the USA. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing this bottomless uh, pit of knowledge that you have. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> been really fun. And I know that my, my listeners will be, you know, they'll be drawn in by this episode. You've been a star. Well, thank you. I hope so. And thank you so much for the invitation. I, this was really fun for me. These are topics I love talking about. I hope your listeners enjoyed. And I hope 
we get a chance to maybe do another one on another topic. <laughs> well, why not? Why not? Well, we can we can throw around some ideas because I, yeah, uh, yeah. I think we could spend hours uh, tapping mm. your knowledge. On this <laughs> thank you. So, thank you again. To, to thank to, you so uh, much. Also, and, and well, to my listeners, get involved, please. And now we'll say goodbye and over to some of our sponsors. So thank you again for listening. Bye-bye. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Colombia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017. By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions, and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again.